Welcome to this week's podcast from Oceans Church in Orange County. We hope you're encouraged by this week's message. For more information, please visit our website at theoceanschurch.com. We're going to do that today. Luke chapter 10, if you're ready to go, Sam, ready? going to be a good Sunday. It says this in verse 25. This is the parable of the good, the good Samaritan. Maybe the most scandalous story that Jesus told and arguably one of the most practical uh, parables that Jesus ever gave. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. Jesus spoke in parables. Parables were uh, stories that everybody understood to explain to them about everything they wondered about. So God would use earthly things to explain heavenly things. And that's what this parable is essentially going to do. And so Jesus says, behold, a certain lawyer, someone say lawyer, lawyer. lived in Orange County, uh, stood up and tested Jesus saying, teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Someone say eternal life. This is a good question posed by a good individual. I do believe that this guy was smart enough to realize that if you understand eternity properly, you'll actually understand how to live, how to live your 80, 90 years on earth properly. What do I do to inherit eternal life? God says, Jesus says, what is written in the law? What is your reading of it? How do you understand this? And the lawyer responded, well, I think you should love the Lord your God. He quotes the Shema, and he says, I think you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus goes, you've answered really well. That was, that's a good answer. Go and uh, do this, and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, the Message Bible says, trying to find a loophole, he says, and who is my neighbor? Jesus answered and said, a certain man, a certain man, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing and wounded him, departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a certain priest, someone say priest. So there's a certain man, then a certain priest, uh, happened to uh, come down on that exact road, and he saw the man wounded, but he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, say with me, a Levite. Levite. Certain man, a priest, and now a Levite, uh, when he arrived at the same place, came down and he looked. So he did a little bit more than the first guy did. He actually came over and looked at him a little bit, but then he passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, Third, fourth, fourth character here, Samaritan, looked uh, as he journeyed, came to where the wounded man was. And he saw him, had compassion on him, so he went to him. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil on, uh, and wine, and he set him on his own animal, set him up on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and he took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took two denarii, which would be about uh, two days' wages, gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, take care of this guy, and whatever, you, whatever more you spend on him, when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three was a neighbor to him who fell among thieves? And the lawyer, not wanting to acknowledge because of the racial tension that was charged in that day and era, said, uh, uh, the one that showed mercy on him. Jesus said, all right, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. It's always interesting that the story is followed up by the story of Martha and Mary. And uh, it's kind of an interesting uh, scene change that it goes from go and do likewise to Mary and Martha, who Mary's just kind of parked out at the feet of Jesus. And uh, Martha's like, Mary, Mary, Mary. 
instead of Martha, Martha. Okay, we'll keep going. It's a Brady Bunch quote. Uh, let's pray this morning. We're going to have a good time today. If you believe it, say amen. God, I just thank you so much for Ocean's Church. Thank you for what you're doing in our church. Thank you that God, we're 28 weeks old, seven months. Thank you this service here is, I think, about, uh, about a month and a half old now. And I thank you that you're doing great things in our midst. I pray today, Lord, as we read a familiar passage, that you would do something unfamiliar. I pray you would meet us where we are, speak to us in our current condition, and I pray that you would lead us into where you want us to be today. I pray you'd bless this Sunday, be, let it be a great week, let the favor of God continue to be upon us, and I pray, Lord, that what you didn't do this year for the Lakers, you would do next year. In Jesus' name, if you believe it, say amen. Anybody following March Madness? All right, me and Dylan, all right. Bless the Lord. Uh, pray for sports fans to start coming to our church. I, uh, I remember uh, watching this, uh, seeing this movie on the airplane, uh, it was called Identity Theft, and uh, Melissa McCarthy's in this movie, and uh, Melissa McCarthy's a pretty funny actress, if you've ever seen anything that she's made, she's just borderline a little bit inappropriate, uh, minus the borderline, and, uh, but it was a pretty funny uh, concept that this, this lady essentially steals the identity of this really hardworking, kind of blue-collar individual, and I started, you know, I was kind of thinking through this as I'm reading through this passage. I just felt like the Lord just said, Mark, I want you to teach on this idea. I always pray for you when I read the Bible. And I really felt like if there's one thing I feel called to do here at Ocean's Church, why God brought us to Orange County, is I think a lot of people, uh, they've heard about God. They've been to church. They might even have family and friends that call themselves Christians. But I think many times we actually mistake the identity of who Jesus really is. I think a lot of people, if we're not careful... Uh, we not only mistake God's identity, but I think when you get God's identity wrong, it actually affects your identity. And uh, I don't know if you've ever had your identity stolen. Uh, I know we live in an era with, you know, public Wi-Fi. We have, uh, we have all these passwords online. My, if you have anybody in your family, like my wife, that's always shopping online, it makes it probably a little bit more realistic to have somebody acquire your details. But it's really a, it's a really a un, un, uh, just just unnerving uh, experience when someone actually gets a hold of your personal information. And I've had my credit card stolen a couple of times. One time they stole a couple thousand dollars. And I remember it was so annoying because I'm calling like the, the credit card company. I'm like, I did not spend $2,000 at, you know, Chuck E. Cheese or wherever it was, some random bill. I'm like, how do you spend two grand at a, like, it was like a, it was a pharmacy, I think, that someone spent two grand. I'm like, I do not, buy, I'm not a street pharmacist. Come on. I'm a pastor, man. I preach. And someone spent a ridiculous amount of money. It was like Rhode Island. And I remember calling, and I'm, I'm like having a very uh, kind of colorful conversation with the, the lady on the phone. And she's like, are you sure this wasn't you? Are you sure you or someone you know didn't access your card and spend this money? I'm like, lady, if my wife or anybody I knew spent $2,000 at CVS, we'd have a bigger conversation to have right now. And uh, I remember losing money, but I, there's something very vulnerable and a little bit, I don't know, uh, uh, unnerving about when someone gets access to your identity. And I was thinking about, you know, the story, we've read it a hundred times, and I'll be honest, I, I've heard it taught a lot, I've read it a lot, and I've never really seen it uh, quite like I've seen it uh, this, this past week and a half. But I, I love this story because, it, first of all, it kind of let's, let's look at the backdrop of it. It says, a certain man went from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, if you don't know that You've never been to Israel. What you don't know is that's a really significant decline. It's actually a decline of about, um, I think it's 1,600 feet that you would actually go. It's, it's 
3,600 foot descent because uh, Jerusalem's at 2,300 feet elevation. Uh, Jericho is right next to the Dead Sea. It's 1,300 feet below sea level. So you're dropping 3,600 feet in less than 20 miles. So it's a crazy descent. And along the way, not only is it a, is it a pretty uh, exceptional drop, but there's a lot of crevasses, there's a lot of like rock structures, narrow passageways, and a lot of corners that are blind. And so it was notorious in the early days, actually all the way up to the 1930s, to be one of the most dangerous trails you could travel on. Um, so much so that in the ancient world, like uh, we have documents from like 170 AD of pig farmers writing letters to the government complaining because of all the, the bandits, all of the villains that were on this road that actually in brigades would attack travelers on this road. So Jesus is using a very familiar, again, this is what he does in parables. He uses something that everybody understands to explain something that everybody wonders about. And he's like, this is a dangerous road. And there's a certain man who is traveling by himself. Now, here's the first thing about the story that you got to understand here is that this guy was one of two things right out of the gate. He was either irresponsible because no one would travel this road by themselves. You would always travel with a convoy if you're traveling a dangerous route. So the first thing we know is he's either reckless or he's careless. He's reckless or he's careless, which really squashes right away, right out of the gate, the idea that we should only be nice to people that are responsible. This is the first thing that's shattered in the story is it starts off by Jesus saying, there was a guy that was irresponsible and reckless. And he started a journey, not with a convoy, with safety, but by himself because he was a renegade. And he starts this journey for 20 plus miles. And on the journey, he encounters these people that, that this is what the Bible, it, it's just very clear. It says that these thieves stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, departed, him, uh, departed from him, leaving him half dead. It says that he fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing. Now, this is a really important part of the story is Jesus wants it to be told that when someone is stripped of their clothing, they are robbed of their identity. In Bible days, much like today, but even more so, you could tell a lot about an individual by the clothes they wore. Royal people wore a certain attire, peasants wore a certain attire, prostitutes wore a certain attire. All throughout scripture, depending on how you dressed, it goes throughout the Bible, there's many, many scenes that say, and this person saw, Judah saw this, this harlot, and he could tell by looking at the individual because of their clothes. Clothes in the Bible were always synonymous with, uh, I mean, there's really two ideas with clothing. When there was an absence of clothing, it always represented shame. All the way from Genesis. It says that the way committed sin, they were naked and they were ashamed. What, the first thing that Jesus does in the Old Testament is he actually clothes a shameful people. And in the New Testament, we see a story here. This is really Christianity at 30,000 feet. That there's somebody that's, that's naked like Adam and Eve were in the garden. And the crazy difference was is that in this context, we don't know if they're important or they're insignificant. So Jesus goes, this guy's irresponsible, he's reckless, and by the way, we don't know if he's rich or if he's poor. He's just an unknown identity. And he's lying on the road naked, and it says that he's telling this story to Jewish people, by the way. And he uses the two greatest heroes of the Jewish cultures. He says, alright, this guy's naked, he's half alive, he's wounded, he's bruised, he's bleeding, and he's barely holding on. And all of a sudden, a priest shows up, and all the Jews probably perked up, and they're like, finally, safety has come. 
And what we don't know here is there's, there's, there's a lot of different types of priests throughout the Bible. And, uh, and there's actually 24 uh, courses of priests in this context in the ancient world that would actually spend two weeks out of every year serving in the temple doing priestly duties. And what we know is, is the numbers, it talks about if you actually come in contact as a Jew with a dead body, you are unclean for seven days. So this is a big deal. If you're selected to be a priest in the temple for two weeks out of the year, it is the highlight of your year. It's a great honor to serve in the temple. And what we know is, is this priest probably didn't want to come in contact with this guy because he didn't know if he was alive or if he was dead. If he was dead, this guy would sacrifice his privilege of serving in the church. So you could say this way. The priest, he chooses uh, religious tradition over serving humanity. Which I think if we're not careful, we fall into the same category today. So the priest, he, uh, he's like, I can't. Look, I'll miss out on serving for the week. Because you could go about your normal duties, but you can't do anything sacred in the ancient world if you encounter a dead body. And secondly, we see here that not only did he, there was a priest, then he goes, all right, then there was a Levite. And the crowd's probably like, okay, fine, if the priest can't get it done, the Levite will take care of this problem. And the Levite was probably the second most prominent group in the Jewish sector of, of significant individuals. And so the, the, Jewish, uh, the, the Jews heard, all right, this Levite comes down, he walks on the side of the road, sees him, but does the same thing, goes to the other side of the road, leaves him. And we see here that the third, the third, uh, character in the story is, is Jesus, there's a Samaritan. Samaritan. Now, what we got to understand about Samaritans, many of you know this, is that they were, a, uh, they were a mixed breed. Basically, it was Jewish people that intermarried with pagan people all the way back in the Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jubicites, and the Cellulites. Are you following me? So it goes all the way back to these people. So Jews hated Samaritans so strongly, they believed they were cursed, they believed that they wouldn't do business with them. If they were thirsty, they wouldn't ask for a drink from a Samaritan. And so there was a racial divide between the Jews and the Samaritans that were probably greater than any racial divide that we know here in America today. And so when the Jews hear Samaritan, they're like, all right, villain music, da-dun, right? Da-dun. Like, we know who the villain is, right? And all of a sudden, Jesus shatters because what they were expecting to be the villain turns out to be the hero. And here's what God's trying to tell the story about who Jesus is, who Christianity is, is that who society thought would be the hero is actually the villain. And who the villain is of society is actually the hero. And he's trying to paint a picture here. And so if you're taking notes, I want you to write down really four ideas that I had today with identity theft. Identity theft does three things. And what it does is it, uh, the first thing it does is it tries to disfigure your name. First thing that someone does when they steal your identity is they try to they try to muddy your name. And if you want to steal someone's identity, all, all you got to do is you got to convince other people that, that their name is your name, and they try to bring confusion to a name. I think one of the greatest confusions we have today in our era is what does the name Jesus Christ really mean? Everyone has an opinion about that name. It's the only name that's been argued as much over. There's no other name that's collected more controversy and more praise than the name of Jesus. So the first name that we see here that's under attack is, or the first thing on identity theft is it goes after the name, and then it goes after the credit. In the current day, when someone steals your identity, they're usually going to attack your credit. They take your credit cards. You know what credit is? It's your reputation. You know what's under attack, I believe, even today, is the reputation of God's name. So there's identity theft with names, with credit, and the third thing that there's attack with, with identity theft is there's an attack on identification. 
Identification is how, how you are recognized by somebody else. I believe many times in our, our day and age, we hear about Jesus, Christianity, and the church, and all of a sudden, the identification of, uh, of God is under attack because all we recognize is we've heard a bad story about weird people that said, I got a disease, God punished me with tragedy, with a miscarriage, or a cancer, or a disease. God is giving me what I deserve, and God's ID is screwed up because people have associated the wrong name to the wrong reputation because of the wrong identification. And so what we see here, if you're taking notes, I want you to write these four things down God gave me, is I think if we're going to clarify identi- uh, our identity and get identity really solidified theologically, is there's four areas I believe God really put on my heart to share with you today, is number one is your identity. I always read uh, Luke chapter 10, I always thought I was the good Samaritan. But what I realize when I read Luke chapter 10 is that Christians by nature are not the good Samaritan. We are actually the traveler that was wounded on the way. We were actually born, I don't care who you are, rich or poor, tall or short, we are all born in a condition like this traveler that we, we've, we've fallen among thieves. What do you mean fallen among thieves? We don't know who we are until we know whose we are. We're born in this world. Am I supposed to be charismatic? Am I supposed to be, am I supposed to be conservative, Republican, uh, liberal? Am I supposed to, what, what's my identity? And we're born in a culture that's always trying to project what our identity is. And it says here that, that this guy, he's stripped, he's naked, he's shameful, he's wounded, he's half dead. I believe, I'll be, if we're being honest, if you could see past the clothes, past the checking savings account, past the vocations, I believe that our condition without a savior is much like the description of this man, that we actually don't have a, sol- a solidified identity. I don't, know if I'm, if, I don't know if I'm gifted or if I'm non-gifted. I don't know if I'm going to go somewhere or nowhere. I don't know if God has a plan for my life or if he doesn't have a plan for my life. I believe the first thing that has to be cleared up is our identity. And I always thought that I was a Samaritan, but I actually think that we are born in this world much more similar to the traveler that was attacked on his way than the guy doing good deeds called the Samaritan. So I think the first thing we have to clear up with identity theft is, number one, our identity. I believe that we resonate more with the traveler that's been mugged than the Samaritan that has it figured out. Number two is we have to look at our situation. I believe the human plot is, is that we try to do, this is what Jesus is telling in the story here, is we try to solve human problems by just religious means. And I love this because I love how Jesus goes, look, I know everyone thought that, that the priest and the Levite were going to save the day. The priest represented the law. And we read this passage and these Jews are probably going, that's right, the law is going to fix the broken condition of the wounded traveler. But what we see here is that the wounded traveler is broken, fragmented, screwed up, and it wasn't the law, the priest, or the Levite that had the solution to this guy's problem. Many people think, well, I start going to church, I'll become a good person, then I'll get all of my wounds taken care of. But I want you to know, I, really, I, believe, I believe this, that going to church doesn't necessarily solve the dilemma of your soul. Religion doesn't solve the dilemma of your soul. I really fundamentally believe, well, what's your, isn't this like the business that you're in? I actually believe it's encountering this Samaritan. It's, it's encountering this guy that would actually come to you. This, this is kind of the fabric here of the story, is it says that our, our situation was, is we thought that priests, Levites, and laws would solve the, the brokenness in our souls. 
And I love the story over and over again is that Jesus over and over again throughout the Bible depicts that it's never just law. Are boundaries good? Yes. Does God have a truth? Yes. Is there a standard? Absolutely. But is it law by itself that that heals the condition of a broken soul? And the answer is no. So he says here our identity is is mixed up. Our situation is we we try to use religion to fix human uh, dilemmas. And number three, what's our solution? And I love this story because we read about the Good Samaritan. I, many times we used to read this story. I used to read all the time and go, man, this is what I got to do. I got to go and do likewise. I've got to go and uh, I've got to actually, I got to do something that actually earns the favor of God, earns, earns the respect of heaven. And I was thinking about this today. If you're, if you're, if you're writing notes, you write this down. I want you to know that the Samaritan isn't us. It's Jesus. How do you know the Samaritan's Jesus? Because it says that Jesus sees this guy in his fallen state. And when he sees him in his fallen state, he comes over to where he is. What are you saying? I'm saying it's very clear. It's, it, Jesus comes to where he is. He has eyes of compassion, not for a guy that's irresponsible and a reckless traveler. Not for a naked, identityless individual. But he actually comes to someone that was irresponsible, has eyes of compassion, goes to where he is. This is what Christianity does. It's not like other religions that says, climb out of the hole and you can earn a seat at the table. It's Jesus getting into the hole with us and pushing us out of the hole and saying, look, I've been there, done that. He came down to where he was. There's so many Christophanies in the story that he gets down off of his animal, grabs us in our lowly state, and puts us up onto his place. This is, the, this is the story of the gospel, is that he comes to a low place, humbles himself, elevates us to his high place, and then he brings us to his inn. And the inn represents the church. And the innkeeper represents pastors and people like you and like me that say, you know what? Life isn't just about zeros, paychecks, four-bedroom houses, walk-in closets, and a white picket fence in Ladera Ranch. Come on. It's actually bigger than just making a living. It's about making a difference. So he goes, I'm going to get him into the inn, and I'm going to actually bandage up his wounds. Immediately, he's going to feel better. The moment he encounters me, he's going to feel better. But here's the good news. We don't know how long he stays at the end. We don't know how long his recovery process is. And I want to encourage us as a church, let's just be really open and honest uh, up from the very beginning of our church, is that we will never put timetables on when people should recover from. We are not the diagnoser of, all right, you have three weeks to get it together. You have four weeks to stop doing this and stop doing that. We don't know how long the wounded traveler lived at the end. What we do know is that he immediately was improved. But we know this, that Jesus spent time with them in the inn for a while. And then he actually, he actually paid. There's always a cost, I believe. Always a cost. Some of you showed up today, you're like, oh, what's the cost? There was people showed up. Uh, Joel picked up the trailer this morning at like 6.45 in the morning. There is always a cost to creating an inn that hosts people to improve. There's always a cost. And this guy, the Samaritan says, hey, whatever, whatever it costs, I'll pay, I'll pay the difference. Here's three days wages. And I read the story and I'm like, I don't think I'm good enough to actually sacrifice three days of my wages to help somebody that was reckless and irresponsible. I think we're being honest today. We actually would find ourselves more like, more, more like the guy just beat up, wounded, screwed up than the Samaritan that's like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to sacrifice three days. 
I'm going to get off my animal. I'm going to put him up where I belong. I'm going to bring him to where I should stay. I'm going to pay money that I earned, take care of his irresponsibility, uh, irresponsible lifestyle. It's, just, it's interesting to me that this guy does what this other guy does not deserve. And the Samaritan says this, is he says, whatever else you spend, I'll cover you. I'll pay you back when I come again. So over and over again, we see this as Jesus. He has eyes of compassion. He comes down to where he is. He lifts him up to where he belongs. He takes him to the inn. He pays the bill, and he promises, I'm coming back again one day. This is who Jesus is. And I love this story because it's our solution. Our solution is, is that we are the wounded traveler. And we've, I'll be honest, I, I really fundamentally believe that you'll never know what you're supposed to do in life until you connect with the God that gave you the purpose. God does not make accidents. He doesn't make mistakes. Some of you are like, Mark, I hate my job. Well, i got news for you. God did not give you 80 years of life to hate every day of your life. I, I actually believe that God made you to do something that you would actually enjoy and find value in. And I'd be as bold to say, I'd rather make less money doing something that I love to do, have a passion for, a burden for, than making millions of dollars slaving away at something I can't stand. And you're here today and you're like, what's the solution? I believe the solution is, is that Jesus came to where we were. Ban can come up here, I'm almost finished. And the, third, and the fourth thing is, if you're taking notes, is there is a, there's a script, there's a situation, solution. And number four, there's a standard. There's a standard. I think that one of the most important things in the story is, that maybe you could read in the lines a little bit, is I wonder, I just wonder, hypothetically, if the innkeeper was a former traveler that was wounded on the way. I wonder, maybe potentially, if, uh, if, if the guys that are the best at taking care of beat-up people are the ones that previously were those beat-up people. I was reading the story, and I was just thinking, man, like I don't think that we are born naturally with a compassion and a mercy gift strong enough to inconvenience three days of our journey, to leave our condition, to actually go where we're not wanted, not expected, help people that we don't really feel like deserve our help. I don't think that by nature we're that godly. I actually think that our standard is, is that when you actually wake up from your subconscious state, from your coma, from being uh, beaten severely, and you're in this inn, and you have people taking care of you and there's an IV in your arm and you're bandaged up and you start healing and all you remember are these fragmented memories of this Samaritan. By the way, you don't care who's reaching out a hand to help you when you're drowning. And I'll let you know, if the Jews would have known that this was a Samaritan helping him, they might have tried to reject it. But I'll tell you what, if you're, if you're close enough to death, you don't care where your help comes from. All I know here is this guy is waking up from this this hospital room essentially and he realizes all I do is I have memories of a guy that came down to where I was he poured oil on my wounds he anointed me with oil and wine he lifted me on his animal I remember him sweating toiling to get me across the desert to this inn and when I got to the inn he's, I just remember him saying something like here's some money whatever else you spend I'll take care of it and I'll be honest with you I, I'm, I'm convinced that the only people that have the mercy gift strong enough to take care of the needs of broken people are the ones that are previously broken people. The only re- I'll be honest, I would never be a mister. I'd be like screwed up somewhere. If God wouldn't have reached out his mighty hand when I was 18 years old at a camp in McCall, Idaho, when I prayed an aud- aud- audacious prayer, I said, God, if you're real, prove it to me. 
That is, the, that is the greatest prayer I ever prayed in my life. And if you've never prayed that prayer for yourself, I encourage you today to try it out. I'm telling you that something happens when you say, God, if you are real, if you have a plan for my life, there's a purpose beyond making money and, and making babies and, and, and getting retired and going here and doing this. If there's something more than this, show me. So I was 18 when I prayed that prayer. I had a God encounter, McCall, Idaho. If you don't know where Idaho is, no one else, no one else does either. But I was in McCall, Idaho, and I had this God sovereign encounter. And I'll be honest with you, my natural inclination is I'm, I'm selfish, I'm self-seeking, I'm, I'm, I have a little bit of anger sometimes when I drive. Pray for me. My natural bend is, there's just things in me that I'm bent towards. So why would you give up, and I'll be honest with you, you don't go into ministry to make a big, like, crazy living. You don't go into ministry to have a, like, to get famous or rich. You don't. You don't go into ministry. My grandma always said it this way, that the pay is little, the hours are long in ministry, but the retirement package is out of this world. Best part of ministry. But I want you to know today, I didn't get into ministry because I'm like this selfless person. I'm here today because uh, like some of you, I know what it's like to be wounded. Like some of you, I know what it's like to feel shame. I, I know it's like to be some of you, like, I don't know what my identity is. I don't know if I'm supposed to be a doctor or a lawyer. I don't know if I'm supposed to be a good person or a bad I don't know what I'm supposed to do with my life. And I've been in a shameful state of not knowing what I'm sucking oxygen for. And I know what it's like to feel like you're half alive. It says that he was half dead. And I'll be honest, man, I, I think some of us can be vibrant physically. You'd have a six pack like me. That hurts that you're laughing. Um, you could be in really good physical shape, but internally you could have a really fractured, broken soul. And I want you to know today, I, the only reason I am what I am and my wife and I are doing what we're doing is because when I was 18 years of age, I know what it's like to be on the receiving end of the, hospi of the hus hospitality of Jesus. I know what it's like to be on the receiving end of the hospitality of Jesus. And I'm convinced that our standard as a church is not to go out and do good works until we've experienced the goodness of God for ourselves. That's why he's, it starts off in the story when he quotes the Shema. Is he says this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and go and love your neighbor as yourself. Do you know that you'll never have love for your neighbor until you've connected with a loving, with a loving God? I am convinced, man, our world is possessed with doing good to neighbors, but we don't know how to do it because we don't know how to connect with a loving God. It's only in receiving his love that we can give it. And we can't give something we've never had. We can't give something we've never experienced. And I'm convinced the only people that stop for broken people are the ones that have been on the receiving side of being the individual that was broken. I know what it's like to be forgiven. I know what it's like to be, to, to be a statistic. I should have been a statistic. I grew up in the, uh, it was the domestic violence capital of the world, or of America. The Antelope Valley. People would drive two hours to work in the morning, two hours on the way home in traffic. They'd work eight to ten hours, and they'd come home to crying babies and kids that need to have their homework done. And there was violence in homes. I saw a lot of crazy things at a really young age. But what I've learned was is that I, even though I started in a broken place, God came down to where I was, came low, picked me up to where I could never put myself. And I just, uh, I'm of the persuasion that uh, God's going to give us a new script. And our script is, is that if God could do this for us, 
we're like, it's not obligation, it's, it's life. It's not law. I have to be a good person. It's life. Because he's offered it to me, I want to offer it to others. Maybe you're here today, I want to kind of land like this, is if you're here and you're like, I'll be honest with you, Mark, I feel like, for being honest, I just feel like today, I've, uh, I don't think I'm really good at offering love to other people because I've never really been good at receiving God's love. Notice he says, love your neighbor as you love your. You know, eight times in the Bible it says, love as you love your neighbor, or love your neighbor as you love yourself. Eight times, starting in Leviticus 19, 18, all the way through scripture. It says over and over again, love as you, love as you, love as you, love your neighbor as you love yourself. The problem is that some of you guys hate yourself. And you'll never give a love to other people that you've never received from God. And you're like, how can I forgive other people if I can't forgive myself? I feel like God today wants just, if I could do a little heart surgery today, if we could just create a margin a day to say, you know what, we are all born in the same condition that we're wounded, half alive, and naked in shame on the street. And it's only God with an outstretched hand and a mighty arm that can reach into our broken areas, bring us to a place of health, and actually give us an ability to love ourselves in a way that we could never love ourselves. I always thought the story was about being a better person. I always thought it was about that. I think it is. But I think it's more than that. I think it's, it's realizing that I could never be a good enough person without receiving who Jesus is first. I can't do enough good deeds without God. And if I could pray today for you, would you close your eyes? I can ask you a question today all over the room. Can we just, can we maybe solidify who God wants us to be, our identity today? Would you say this all over the room today? Would you say, Jesus, what are you saying to me through this message? I love this story. Jesus answers a cosmic question. Who's my neighbor? The response of God is anyone that needs your help. Anyone that needs your help. And I think today I want you to be reminded of this, that you are the neighbor of Jesus. And if you need his help today, his arm isn't too short. His ears are not too blocked. He's actually God that can reach down. He can hear you. He can help you. And today, maybe you're in a good season of life or a challenging season of life. Maybe this is some big stressful things on your, on your radar this week. I believe today that God's hand is not too short, that his ears are not too blocked, that he can hear you and that he can help you. Would you do me a favor all over the room? Would you just quietly stand your feet, close your eyes? We're going to land like this this morning. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Have a great week.